Before the days of internet and in YouTube, you we was after ruin Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the break the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiast of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new highs. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. We be stuck to screens in 1980s. And we can't feed them and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles and territories. Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X podcast that looks back at professional wrestling in the territory era. As with me as always today is Barry. What's going on, George? And you know that Captain Kiwi is here. George Barry, I'm here to have fun with you guys. In today's podcast, professional wrestling is awesome when you have two of the best go head-to-head, but it's even better when you double your fun. In this episode, we run down the top 10 tag teams of the greatest decade, the 1980s. Guys, I know that this is our very first top 10 list. We, mm-hmm. I have done many of these with Gen X Grown Up, and I think my favorite part of these lists is not where we get to, but the journey of getting to the top 10. <laughs> the arguments were epic on this list. Oh, I'm already ready to go toe-to-toe with you two on some of these, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> well, it's too late now. We've already got the list. <laughs> I'm ready to hit somebody with a chair. Let's do it. <laughs> you want, okay. He goes hardcore, man. I was going to say, that's a little too hot there. You know, hug, you know, tie up in a tree of woe and hit you with a tag rope. <laughs> it's really fun to do these combined lists. I mean, we could do one like Gen X Grown Up did early on where each one of us comes up with our own top 10. But what we found is that I'll, there's always a lot of overlap, like people wanting this person and that thing at the same level. And so it was hard to decide who got what on their list if we wanted everybody to have different lists. And at least this way, everybody got to a place that we all felt pretty comfortable with our top 10, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. I think that the interesting thing about this one, and we could have done this on the 70s, we could have done this in the 90s, we could have done this all time. But honestly, my opinion, the 80s one kind of best represents the all-time ones. I'd say without, you know, maybe one or two exceptions, these are going to be the best tag teams of all time. Well, the 80s were, were kind of the golden age of, of tag team wrestling. That's very true. wrestling in general, so. I agree with you, Captain Kiwi. And maybe it's because I'm a little bit, you know. Old? Like, well, I'm certainly old. <laughs> we've established that on many podcasts. But I think it's because this was the time when I was really developing my fandom of wrestling. Yeah. Like the late 70s to mid 80s, that time frame. And you're right, Captain Kiwi, the golden age is apt description of the tag team divisions that were happening both not only in WCW or WWF, but all around the different territories. I mean, a lot of these tag teams started off in the territory system, which is the basis for the podcast, and then moved on to bigger stages later on in their careers. Well, both as tag teams and in a lot of cases as individual wrestlers as well. Absolutely. You have some of the greatest individual wrestlers of all time started off in a tag team. And even if they didn't start off in a tag team, maybe they joined a tag team. Yeah. And for a brief period of time, they had something awesome going on, some great storyline or something. We're definitely going to get into quite a bit of this as we go through the list. You're going to see there are people that you don't really expect to work well together on the list. And then there's people who you (laughs) don't understand how they were not together from birth. True. Very true. Right, right. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's dig into the first group of our top 10, 
right after the break. The action and excitement of all pro wrestling returns to Laredo. The meanest Big Mac you ever saw goes up against Gary the Hog Young. Teenage heartthrob Chaz tangles with Nuke. A special APW Tag Team title match pits the champions, the American Breed, against Bubba Monroe and the guy Laredo learned to hate, Al Too Sweet Jones. The main event will be a bloody Mexican death match as Tugboat Taylor meets Big Bob Butcher, plus two other matches. All pro wrestling sponsored by Energy 98. Proceeds benefit the Gateway Lions Club. Barry and Captain Kiwi, what I decided to do with our top 10 tag team list, as you guys already know, was adopt the Gen X grown-up rules for top 10 lists. So I created a spreadsheet, as those out here have heard on the Gen X grown-up podcast. I love spreadsheets. Made us a spreadsheet. Uh, Barry went out and got us a whole bunch of lists of names of all the tag teams from a bunch of different decades, and we decided on the 80s after that. And we each got 60 points to divvy up. Now, the rules are you have to vote on at least 10 tag teams in order to qualify. And in order for a tag team to make our list, all three of us has to have given it at least one point. If we didn't give it a point from one of the three of us, then it couldn't make the list. And that's when the arguments ensued. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there was a lot of arguments and bartering and threats. I believe there were a few of those. You know, There were a few. Yeah, I apologize. I get a little, I get a little intense whenever we're we're arguing over a top 10 list. I wait till the recording when I make my threats. There you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did um, come to a consensus. And yeah, yeah, for the I, most part. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think so. We we also have honorable mentions that we'll get to later on. Now, those honorable mentions were the ones that each one of us gave the most points to that didn't make the top 10 list. So for instance, if Barry gave somebody three points and it didn't make the top 10 for some reason, then that would be his honorable mention over somebody that maybe he gave two points to. And the fact that they didn't get any other points just means that you two were wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can look at it that way. And as soon as your microphone comes back on, everybody else will hear that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. See, this is why well, we never give George a dump button. So. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Captain Kiwi, let's start with you. Why don't you kick us off with number 10? All right. Number 10, we have the Bushwhackers. Uh, George gave it four points. So did I. Barry, what the hell you gave it to? Rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they started in 1966 as the Kiwis, I believe. Uh, and they wrestled all the way up until uh, 2001 with uh, Butch Miller and Luke Williams. When I started watching wrestling, they were wrestling as the Bushwhackers. They had that kind of comedy gimmick going on, uh, licking the head and, and the dance and everything <laughs> like that. Licking the head. So that's, that's I how I about that. So that's how I uh, remember them most fondly. Uh, but when I did some research and uh, watching them as the Sheep Herders, wow, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, they were crazy brutal. Yeah, they were super brutal. As a matter of fact, they even um, talked about it a little bit in that Tales of the Territories thing that's going on with Vice TV right now as we record most of our episodes. They talked about how they brought that attitude even into the locker room a little bit, like coming in and saying how American wrestlers were were wimps and soft. couldn't yeah. take right. it tough and soft and everything. And I mean, they lived kayfabe both behind the scenes and in front of the fans back then. It was absolutely really yeah. intense absolutely the good old days of kayfabe Ooh. yeah the days of kayfabe right i mean it's it's a testament to their to their longevity though the fact that they went from 1966 yeah. to 2001 and the same two guys if i'm not mistaken yeah i don't remember there being any other members i would say it was just those two doing my research 
uh, finding that, that they started in 1966, I was kind of blown away because I was like, wow, that's you know, like 40 years of mm-hmm. almost 40 years of wrestling. Almost. That's crazy. All right. Well, I get to come in with my favorite, my dark horse pick on this one. The number nine pick, the one that you two both crapped on left and right. <laughs> the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. I gave this one seven points. Kiwi gave it a three and George gave it a two, which I will never understand. I think I had to fight you guys to get those. Honest to God, I only gave it two to get some of my other stuff (laughs) higher up on the list later on because I wouldn't have given them anything. I mean, I I, Barry, I respect your wrestling Mm -hmm. knowledge and history. Mm -hmm. I don't agree that they're one of the top 10 tag teams. I, I will say this from 84 to 87. There was no other tag team on the planet. If you watch WWF, that was more hated that instigated a crowd better, that brought about that absolute viscera of people just wanting to go and destroy them better than the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. You know why there wasn't a tag team better at it from 84 to 87? Hmm. Because there were other teams in other organizations who had done it three years earlier. Granted, I'll give you that. There has always been the... (laughs) The foreign villains. <laughs> the Koloffs right. in WCW and NWA, the Crockett territories. I mean, there's no way to argue that Sheik and Volkoff were better than the Koloffs. I mean, the Koloffs had babyface runs and splits. They had True. epic battles with the Horsemen and Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA. They were all over the map. But this is your pick. It made the list. Mine didn't. I'm, I'm okay with that, as everybody can tell. I, <laughs> as he bites a hole in his tongue. Well, and if you think about it, those two represented two of the most, we'll say, tumultuous yes. points in the world during that time with the Middle East as well as with the Soviet Union. You didn't get better heels with that. Those guys just personified everything bad about what was going on in the world. And that was something, you know, I on this podcast, we occasionally will give WWF credit on things. But that is something that they really did well, is they knew how to monopolize on the whole patriotism as a gimmick. Yeah, both right. Positively right. and negatively. And this is a good representation of that. That's why I gave you one point more than George. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, George, I think you have number eight, right? I do. And number eight is one that I had to fight quite a bit for. So I'll just set it up. I gave it six points. Mm -hmm. Barry gave it five. Captain Kiwi gave him three for the Midnight Express. And Captain Kiwi, I'm sorry, that's just a damn shame. I'm going to eat your lunch on this topic for the rest of the segment. (laughs) The Midnight Express have a long and storied history, even before, believe it or not, Jim Cornette joined the group and really brought them to prominence. So before he was there, it was Dennis Condry, Randy Rose, and Norvell Austin and Ron Starr, they were all a part. Well, maybe Ron Starr was part of the later. I can't remember. There's so many. Let me just go through the list. There's like (laughs) 700 people that were in the Midnight Express at one point or another. Dennis Condry, Randy Rose, Norvell Austin, Ron Starr, Honky Tonk Ferris, Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane, Bob Holly, Bart Gunn, and Ricky Nelson. The tag team name has been around from 1980 to 2011. I'm going to tell you right now, none of those names matter except for Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, and Stan Lane. Those are the three real members of the Midnight Express, if you ask me. Well, and I'll be honest, George, that's part of the reason why I didn't vote it stronger than I did 
was just because when you say the Midnight Express, it's like if you're not talking about Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton, it kind of gets diluted because it's been around for so long and there's been so many different guys that called themselves the Midnight Express. It doesn't carry that impact that mm-hmm. somebody that, you know, two guys were the only ones that had that name and carried that name through the entire run. Now, that being said, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, hands down, one of the best tag teams that ever walked the planet. Oh, absolutely. The other guys? Yeah. I think Dennis Condry did a super serviceable job when he, he was did. with- He did. And Bob Holly didn't do bad when he was, you know, no, no. with the Midnight Express. No, Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton, though, that was mm-hmm. a solid team. And that's the first time that you get Jim Cornette. Yeah. As part of the trio, right? With the manager. Regardless of the wrestlers, Jim Cornette is the manager. That's the real Midnight Express. Yeah. I use that term real Midnight Express because there was another team (laughs) called the real Midnight Express that Dennis Condry and Randy Rose brought back whenever Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane had gone. And this was when Dennis Condry just walked out of NWA. At that Mm -hmm. point, he just, no, I don't want to be part of WCW NWA anymore. And he just left. And so Bobby Eaton was like, well, shit, I need a partner. And I think it was Dusty Rhodes, maybe, that put Stan Lane with them and they came up with a little cute because it was always I forgot Dennis Condry's nickname but Bobby Eaton was beautiful Bobby Eaton and then Stan Lane became I believe sweet Stan Lane is he the sweet or stunning I can't remember stunning no stunning stunning is is Steve Austin that's yeah yeah Yeah. really fun tag team and arguably in the 1980s the best tag team feud of all time between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express yeah definitely one of the most drawn out ones that's for Mm. sure because it's seemed like that exactly it seemed like that particular war don't even call it a a a segment it was a war between those two teams just went on forever you don't see storytelling like that anymore in in wrestling no well i mean those are some great picks to start with the list we've got another group seven through five coming up right after the break so let's get to it the very best in professional wrestling returns to the arena in St. Louis Friday, August the 7th. On that super wrestling card, Sting will tangle with his former partner, Rick Steiner. Then it's Terry Bam Bam Gordy taking on Black Bart. For the U.S. Tag Team Championship, the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette go against the man with the hands of stone, Ron Garvin, and gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Precious. For the U.S. Heavyweight Championship, Nikita Koloff is challenged by Lex Luger. Then for the Western States Heritage title, it's Barry Windham going up against Big Bubba. A special bunkhouse tag match has Dick Murdoch and Eddie Hot Stuff Gilbert going against Steve Dr. Death Williams and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. And then for the world heavyweight title, it's the nature boy Ric Flair being challenged by Freebird Michael Hayes. And coming in at number seven, we have the Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty from 1985 to 1992. I gave it a whopping nine points because how could you not? Barry gave him five. And what the hell, George? One point for the Midnight Rockers? <laughs> yeah, Come I'm on. I'm still confused on that one. <laughs> Again, I had other priorities. <laughs> <laughs> I was okay <laughs> giving you guys one point as long as some other teams made it a little further up the list. And that's what a good manager does for his tag team. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, <laughs> okay, right. okay. I see how you are. I see how it is. <laughs> We're only talking about Sean freaking Michaels here. I mean, come on, you know. And Marty Jannetty. Well, well, you know. The Midnight Rockers, when they got to the WWF, they uh, shortened their name to the Rockers. And mm-hmm. after after the um, one of the biggest uh, breakups and biggest heel turns of all time, and one of the 
biggest singles careers that launched from it. How could you not give it more than one point, George? I'll Come tell on. you how I could not give it more than one point because of the exact reasons that you just gave. Number one, what do you remember them for? Their breakup and Shawn Michaels singles career, neither of which have a goddamn <laughs> thing to do with what they did as a tag team. And a lot of neon. A lot, a lot of, of neon. neon. Yeah. <laughs> and the little frilly things that came off of their tights that kind of were reminiscent of another tag team we're going to talk about later. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of copyright <laughs> infringement on those fringe tassels. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I, I gave him a five on this because I definitely think that if you don't have the rockers, you don't have those moments. And those moments are so synonymous with wrestling storytelling that you, you can't really discredit those. I think they're in the right position at seven. I would have probably put them, you know, maybe eight or nine, but I definitely think that they needed to be on this list just because of the impact they had, not only during the time that they were performing, but also afterwards. Right. With with the kind of high-flying double-team tactics at the same time has uh, influenced true. a lot of just professional wrestling, especially tag teams from then on. You're right. They had double-team tactics. They had high-flying, but they watched another team develop that for five years before they ever came together. I kind of <laughs> think... They figured out the blueprint by watching other people. And I don't think they were better than the other people as a tag team. Now, you talk about they came into WWF. Before that, they were AWA. Right. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think they were Vern Gagne's answer to what NWA, Jim Crockett, and WCW were doing further south because he needed that dynamic. Couldn't get the tag team that's going to be further up the list later on. Couldn't get them to come to his territory. There was a lot of uh, stuff that I read where he basically tried to bribe the other tag team to come up there with thousands of dollars, and they just simply refused to because they didn't like the AWA style of wrestling. So I'm going to segue into one of my favorite tag teams of all time. You know what works really band. well? Hmm. When you tell everybody you're going to do a segue by using the word segue. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love you guys. Anyway, <laughs> number six. I'm fond of you too. <laughs> Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid, I give you the British Bulldogs. Mm. Oh, now, nice. This one, honestly, this is the first one that I can remember that we were pretty close on how we all ranked it. Uh, George gave it a six and, and Kiwi and I both gave it five because this needed to be kind of right in the middle. You know, is it the best tag team of all time? No. But can you have a tag team discussion without having the Bulldogs? Absolutely not. No, I agree. When you're talking about tag teams from the 80s, this oh, yeah. tag team belongs on anybody's top 10 list. I'll tell you why I like them so much. They were one of the tag teams that did the smaller, faster guy yes. with the power mm -hmm. guy dynamic. Right. And I really appreciate that in a tag team. Anytime you even go to like a wrestling tag team video game system, right? You always want the combination of the two guys who are one's got the speed for you. The other one's got the power. Yeah, and absolutely. Absolutely. Completely. And there may not be a tag team that embodied that more than the British Bulldogs did. These guys ran from, from 83 to 1990. And to George's point, I mean, the fact that they had the two different body styles that just meshed so perfectly. And again, Vince McMahon knowing gimmicking and knowing how to market, having them come down to the ring with an actual English Bulldog named Matilda. Mm, I mean, right. you, you don't get but that's That is perfect, perfect marketing for that era, you know? And they just, had the it, credentials too. Davy Boy oh, Smith yeah. comes out of the heart 
support group, right? And well, I think they both did. Didn't well, they? yeah, uh, Dynamite, Dynamite Kid, Kid did as well. Yeah, yeah. Stampede. But I mean, Davy Boy Smith. But... I think he married into the family. Yes, Davy yeah. Boy Smith did marry right. into the family. Actually, I believe his son is—is is it Davy Boy Smith or Dynamite Kid's son that's still wrestling? Davy Boy Smith's son was wrestling. Um, yeah, I think he might have retired. Okay, I know he had been wrestling for a few years. There was one. It was when they had had some kind of injury or something like that, and they were in a tag team uh, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. And one of them got injured. And you talk about a lineage, right? The Hart Foundation, the Hart family lineage that goes back. And these two guys, nobody knew for years that they were part of that organization. As far as Kayfabe no. was concerned, right. they kept them separate. And there is a time where there's an overlap with another tag team that's further up our list where they were both in the same organization at the same time. And mm-hmm. feuding. And, yeah. And, and did a wonderful well. job of it. I mean, with some yeah. great storylines to it, you know? That's and, and that's really a, a, a testament to how good of a team that they are, that they were able to be, for the most part, baby faces. I want to say their entire run. I, Just about, I don't yeah. remember the Bulldogs being heels or if they were, they weren't heels for very long, but they really had that same kind of personification all the way through. And it just it. It was nice to see that kind of consistency when you saw them going up against other teams that will just say couldn't carry a match quite as well. These mm. guys could put people over. They could carry a match. They could, you know, just run the gambit on it. So at number five, we've got Michael Hayes, Buddy Roberts, Terry Gordy, Jimmy Garvin, and Bad Street. <laughs> bam, bam. <laughs> as part of the fabulous Freebirds. This was a great tag team. Break down the points for you real quick. I gave him seven. Barry, you gave him six. Captain Kiwi gave him a modestly respectable four. I think he probably could have thrown a couple more points in there, but he's got his loyalties in other places that we're going to find out here in the next segment. This is the tag team when you think about six-man tag. Yes. Right. Well, they invented right? the free bird rule was named for these guys. So Yeah. Their feud with Yvonne Eriks was just oh. amazing. Oh, epic. Yeah. They came in, though, as a face. And yeah. it wasn't until they swerved the Von Ericks. And of course, the Von Ericks are the Golden Boys in the Texas Territory at the time and forever. Uh, they became the most hated individuals on the planet. I'm going to explain the Freebird rule real quick, Barry, that you brought up because yes. some of our listeners might not be aware of what that means. In tag team wrestling, it's always two men versus two men. The Freebird rule allowed any combination or any pair of the three members of the Fabulous Freebirds to defend the normal tag team titles. Now, there are also six-man tag team title championships out there in different organizations that three men versus three men compete for. But yes. the Fabulous Freebirds said, oh no, the three of us own the belts together. And at any time, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy can go out and defend or Buddy Roberts and Michael Hayes or Buddy Roberts and Terry Gordy, any combination could defend the Freebirds. Now, later on, as uh, Buddy Roberts and Terry Gordy kind of left for different reasons. Michael Hayes reteamed with some people. He reteamed first with Jimmy Garvin. This was over in WCW. Mm -hmm. They knew each other from WCCW because Jimmy Garvin had been over there with Precious and Baby Doll, Mm -hmm. the two valets. That was the more flamboyant version of the team? Uh, I don't know. I I still say the original incarnation with with Hayes, Roberts, and, and Gordy was more flamboyant just because... No, I'm going to say they were more badass. They weren't more flamboyant. 
Okay, I'll give you that because the thing that I loved about it the most on this particular one, specifically uh, Kiwi, to your point, when they were warring with the Von Erics, if you look at the build of the Von Erics, they look like clean cut, all American, nice guys. Mm-hmm. Right. You look at the Freebirds, <laughs> these are the guys that came stumbling out of a bar at 3 a.m., drunk as hell, pissed off, looking to get into a fight with somebody. So, kind of like the three of us. Yeah, well, yeah, pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. I take a little offense to that. I call Bam Bam. (laughs) Michael Hayes was the guy that, as a father, you never wanted to see coming and knocking on your door to pick up your daughter. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, Buddy Roberts, to me, he's kind of the forgotten free bird because really, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy were so camera ready all the time. Their charisma was off the charts. Buddy Roberts was really like he even did this thing for a while where he was wearing one of those boxing headgear things. Yes, I remember that. It was like the poor man's Rick Steiner. It was awful. It was terrible. It it was like they were playing him for a fool. But truthfully, he might have been the more technical wrestler of the three. Yeah, I would give you that. Now, I have a question for the two of you to summarize for the the Freebirds here. Who had the better mullet? That's the real question because you have Michael P.S. Hayes that had an amazing one. But then you have Jimmy Garvin, the best hair in wrestling. Uh, I mean, come on. No, so Michael Hayes had the better mullet. Jimmy Garvin had the better Jerry Curl. Okay, I'll give you that. And before we leave this segment, I think it's worth noting that they were the tag team that was featured in the Highlander at the beginning of that movie. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. Along with Vern Gagne's son, Greg, and I forgot who else. But I was trying to think who they were They fighting. were the ones that they did the entrance theme as they're walking down and the Highlander is up in the stands watching the matches at Madison Square Garden. I thought that was really fun. And I remember watching that scene when that movie first came out going, holy crap, it's the fabulous Freebirds. Are they going to yep. be in this movie well they were only in for that one little special segment but that was awesome i love that i couldn't agree more and just the whole mention back of the watching the loudly wrestling you know i love that scene in it (laughs) (laughs) because we don't like distractions wild west wrestling is moving to midnight every saturday night don't insult my intelligence i realize don't ever do that that's right. Now you can see all the banging, body slamming action of the world's wildest wrestling program. Wild West Wrestling. With no distractions. Wild West Wrestling. Every Saturday at midnight on TV 39. And I just want you to know that. Our number four pick, which I have a very personal, personal love for on this, because I gave it a full 10. George gave it a seven. Kiwi only gave it four, which we're going to get into that because that's just, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a sin. It's a crime against humanity. The Sons of Ann Arbor, Michigan, the Steiner Brothers. Mm, there you go. I mean, you talked about earlier when we were discussing the Bulldogs, the, the two physical different shapes or styles of wrestling. People forget that when the Steiner Brothers started, Scott was the small one. He was the skinny one. <laughs> well, Rick was the big bully and Scott was the high flyer. And so, then it kind of yeah, changed, shall we say. Scott was, I'm not going to say Scott was skinny. No, he wasn't skinny, but he was definitely smaller. the smaller of the two. He was smaller, yeah. And you're right. Rick was the older brother bully character. He the was also the, gremlin. the dog face gremlin, the crazy <laughs> roof, 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 you know, as yes. he would run around the ring and do all this stuff. I remember distinctly, though, 
the tag team that Rick Steiner was in just before Mm -hmm. they formed the Steiner brothers. When Scott finally came to professional wrestling, he was with sting and they were managed by hot stuff. Eddie Gilbert. And the only reason why I know this is because they were only together for a few weeks in NWA WCW before they split. And they split at a house show here in Tallahassee, Florida. Nice. And Rick essentially, you know, he turned heel on Sting and Sting left the group, but they never played that out on TV. So I always thought that was kind of sad because I thought Rick Steiner as a bad singles guy would have been really, really fun. Well, and the interesting thing is they they, they formed up, technically they formed in about 80, was it 88, 89, something around that era? Yeah, 89. And, mm-hmm. and they ran for what seemed like forever until I mean, eventually, they, they basically until the end of WCW. Today. Yeah. Yeah. They I mean they still do little little one-off matches here and there today and you know Rick Steiner has gone on he's a su- super successful real estate guy now where he lives. Well, and his and son was the NXT champion. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Braun Breaker is Rick Steiner's son. I yeah. mean, you know, it's and to look at him you can see it. And I but, just I still remember watching these guys. You talk about individual but also, you know, two-man movements and 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 double teams and stuff like that. These guys wrote the book on double teams. I oh, mean, yeah. They really uh, knew how. I'm not going to say off. they wrote the book. I'm going to say they improved and wrote their own chapter. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give yeah. you that. But I mean, these guys just to watch these two in their heyday moves like the Frankensteiner. I mean, Scott mm-hmm. was really the first one to start pulling that off, and the only reason why he stopped doing it is because he got too damn big. He evolved his move set. Rick kind of stayed in the same move set yeah. group, and that was fine. What was great about them was they were one of the few tag teams that really didn't need a manager, but also didn't do a ton of mic work. I mean, Scott was definitely more of the mic guy than Rick was after yeah. a certain period of the character development, right. but they didn't need to do a lot of mic work because they did most of their work in the ring and it spoke for itself. They're one of the few tag teams, certainly the highest one on this list that would have done the least amount of mic work, I would say. I mean, they were a solid team, but I think Aaron has one that he wants to bring up next that he feels might have been slightly higher. Maybe just a little bit. This was tough. (laughs) (laughs) At number three, we have the Heart Foundation. I gave it a modest 14 points. (laughs) (laughs) Modest. The first thing you said when we started talking about this is the Heart Foundation is number one. I'm like, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. I was fighting to get him there, but number three, I, I, I can deal with number three. Uh, Barry gave it six points. George, three. Come on, George. Yeah, Come this, on. This, no, no. I want to hear about this one, George. I want to hear oh, this. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you exactly why I gave this one three. Because Aaron gave it 14 <laughs> goddamn points <laughs> and didn't give any of the points to half the teams we got through talking oh about five minutes ago. That's exactly why I only gave them three points. I admit that the Hart Foundation is a solid tag team. They absolutely deserve to be in the top three tag teams of the 1980s. No question. I'm not even going to argue if you said that they had to be higher up than the number three spot, because once you get to the top three tag teams in the 1980s, it's really nitpicky to decide who is number one, who is number two, and who is number three, because all three of the teams were dominant in their own way. I would say two or three. Number one was the only thing, with one other exception, that all three of us were unanimous on. So I definitely think in that two, three slot, yes. I 
get what you're saying with that. And you're right. Maybe they, they don't rank a number one, but there yeah. are a lot of people who would put them at number one. They wrestled from uh, about 85 to 90 or 91. Uh, it was Brett the Hitman Hart, Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Uh, they started off as the uh, Blue and Black Attack. I'm sorry, the Blue and Black Attack? Absolutely. Great marketing, Vince McMahon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the first you know, couple matches, they did blue and black. Then when they started uh, feuding with, I think it was the Killer Bees, that's when they started using the traditional pink and black. Yeah. And that match, I mentioned it in a previous podcast, that's the one where you get the Jim Anvil Nineheart dropkick of one of the Killer Bees, the standing dropkick right. that still is cemented in my mind this day. I can watch the visual over and over in my head. The majority of their tag team's existence were as heels. Yeah. Right. And, and they played it to the hill. Partnering them with Jimmy Hart was one of the smartest things that Vince McMahon ever Absolutely. did. Because that was a perfect match. It was unusual because Jimmy Hart is the mouth of the South, right? He yeah. embodies Southern wrestling. When you hear Jimmy Hart, you start thinking of Southern wrestling. So to pair him with the Canadian tag team of that era, it wasn't really anything anybody expected. But oh my God, did it do gangbusters in revenue. And oh, yeah. Honestly because, you know, I, I know I'm going to get shot by Captain Kiwi for saying this. Bret Hart, he sucks on the mic. No, he does. He, I agree. He's terrible on the mic. I have heard people that were much, much worse than Bret Hart on the mic. I will say that Jim Neihart was a lot more fun on the mic because he was damn near psychotic. So but Jim Neihart was compelling. You yes. put him in front of a camera and let him do that cackling laugh thing that he and did. And that whole pulling on his goatee to make it look like an anvil. I mean, I, or, sorry, to look like a spike. I loved that. I absolutely loved of that. Yeah. He was really compelling. I think pairing him with Jimmy Hart and especially he's already got the last name. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's just a match made in heaven and they were wonderful. But I'm going to stop us talking about that one because now I'm going to talk about my tag team. It's my podcast. So hey, there we go. you can't stop talking to them without talking about the feud with the British Bulldogs. And OK, I'll give you 30 seconds. Give me your British Bulldogs <laughs> Heart Foundation speech. The matches were great. All four came from Stampede Wrestling, so they'd all work together. You know, they had that chemistry already. So, I mean, naturally, they were going to put on some really good matches. They did. And that was a riveting expose on the, <laughs> oh, <fucking laughs> the feud between the three. Aren't you glad you gave him 30 seconds, George? <laughs> I tried to keep it under 30 seconds. Oh, my goodness. I want to jump to number two because I need a few minutes and we're running out of time with this podcast. But the number two group on our list, Robert Gibson, Ricky Morton from 1980 till by God today, the Rock and Roll Express. Now. <sighs> I didn't give it a modest shit. I gave them a <laughs> solid, as many as I could, 13 points because the Rock and Roll Express are the greatest tag team south of the number one in the world ever. Barry gave them six points because of some negotiations we had. And Captain Kiwi gave them five points again because of some negotiations we had to get some other people on the list. But this group from 1980 to today even... They yeah. do still little spot stuff here and there. If anybody has an argument that they created and developed the majority of the tag team dynamics that every other tag team, save one on this list, used, I want to hear that argument because I'm telling you, these guys really created tag team wrestling. The few times that I actually had the opportunity to watch the Rock and Roll Express perform live, mm. oh my gosh, it was, you could see that they 
they were the proto rockers. They were the benchmark that was used to set by. And so many other tag teams have used that same type of quick motion, high flying, quick tags, double teams. I mean, it's almost But they even also lean into the small big man dynamic, right? So you have Ricky Morton doing the high flying stuff and the small guy stuff. You have Robert Gibson doing the smash mouth punching in the parking lot brawling bare knuckle kind of motif right yeah at the same time that they did that they were the masters of the five second rule oh yeah no question jumping in and out and the five second rule for those who are listening means two men can be in the ring at the same time from the same team until the referee counts to five and then one of them has to get the hell out and that usually happens when a tag is made so let's say that ricky morton is in there and he's got his guide he's beating him down he'll tag robert gibson Robert Gibson will come into the ring. Ricky Morton will maybe uh, throw the guy against the ropes and they'll both do a double drop kick or maybe they'll do a double backflip or uh, they even got super popular and famous for doing the double super kick long before that bastard Shawn Michaels stole that move and made it his own. <laughs> well, I mean, you you talk about the double super kick. That's the Young Bucks. I mean, that's it is now. Yeah, but that if you look at the 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 most popular tag teams that are in the current day, you have a lot of Japanese style wrestling. If you go back and watch the Rock and Roll Express, a lot of that is very Japanese in what they're doing. You look at Lucha. They but, do a lot of Lucha style stuff where they're they doing But they developed those quick it before movements. those organizations did it. I mean, those organizations took it from yes, the Rock absolutely. and Roll Express. That's what I'm saying. That's where that kind of gave birth, so to speak. You know, they really took those and personified it. The two-man actions, those guys were brilliant at double teams. Yeah. And so many other tag teams have picked that up and run with it. To be honest, there's only been one other tag team that I can think of that was more dominating as a, a two-man action than the Rock and Roll Express, and that's our number one. When we come back after the break, we're going to get to our honorable mentions and the number one tag team for turnbuckles and territories from the 1980s. Saturday night at nine, there's more from the explosive superstars of wrestling. Witnessed a new phenomena to hit the WWF. It's Coco Beware and a rather special partner. Then the rock and roll rookie from Memphis, the Honky Tonk Man. Mean and moody, there's Mr. Wonderful. And Rowdy Roddy Piper finishes what he started. Adonis is out and Piper's back in. Superstars of Wrestling, Saturday at 9. We would be remiss if we jumped right into number one without a few honorable mentions. Each one of us had one that uh, held a special place in our hearts, shall we say. And for George's rules... a special rules, place somewhere. Yeah, exactly. For George's rules, these were ones that one of us would vote on when no one else really gave it the credit that it was deserved. And, and I'll start <laughs> off on this one with mine. There was a tag team from 87 to 89 that I think really was a lot of fun. It was entertaining. You had two of the greatest performers individually that came together as a tag team, and it worked. It was Tito Santana and Rick Martel. It was Strike Force. And I know you guys cringe on this. It was cheesy. It was 80s. It was just so over the top. But I mean, you're talking about Tito Santana, one of the greatest workers in the 
history Absolutely. of the WWE. Well, you're, talk- you're talking about Rick Martel. Come on. Exactly. I mean, you're talking Rick Martel. The man has <sighs> been a part of, you know, multiple successful tag teams as well as a successful solo run. Right. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the model Rick Martel, but, you know, hey, it was a gimmick and it worked. But to watch these guys did perform, it? You- it, it did. It did. Yeah, it sold itself yeah. as a heel. He was basically a reincarnation of Gorgeous George. So. Yeah. Yeah. But. Without the talent. kind of a couple uh, <laughs> of steps down below Gorgeous George. Yeah. But the thing that I loved about this was you got to see two great performers that one of the things you mentioned early on, George, was two guys that you never expected to be in a tag team together that actually worked. And this is a good example of that. I mean, they were able to get hot tags. They were able to, you know, do the double team movements on it, but they also were able to shine as individuals. And that's really why I I kind of had to throw my my votes in for strike force on this one. (laughs) Well, you said that two people that that work together well, Mm -hmm. my uh, honor mention not so much mega powers <laughs> okay 87 to uh to 89 the macho man randy savage and hulk hogan uh yeah, teamed up yeah. you sound super enthusiastic about <laughs> yeah. this honorable mention by the way holy hell dude i mean I, I i when you threw this up i thought you were joking to be quite I honest kinda, i kind of sort of was but <laughs> <laughs> but you have you have two you know, great singles competitors. I mean, Macho Man is great. Hulk Hogan, great. Both really good on the mic. Macho Man, a little crazy on the mic, but hey, he's not saying brother all the time. So, <laughs> but basically, they only teamed up a, a, a handful of times. Yeah. And it was it was more for, uh, for a storyline where uh, Macho... Uh, Randy Savage had just won the uh, the WWF the championship. championship. Yeah, mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan kind of came in, still the limelight, and formed up their, their little tag team and teamed up a few times. But it was more about the relationship with Randy Savage and Elizabeth and how yeah. Hulk Hogan was kind of getting a little too close. Yeah, I got to admit, the most memorable part that I can think of for the Mega Powers was when somebody ripped off Elizabeth's skirt on st- on the, the ring apron and the look that both Savage and Hogan gave to one another when they did. <laughs> I think that was the most memorable <laughs> moment in all of the Mega Powers run. The Mega Powers, they weren't really a tag team to be formed against another tag team, really. It was, as you said, Captain Kiwi, it was just a tag team that was formed of, let's put these two over-the-top A-list wrestlers together and they'll draw crowds because we can put them on the card at whatever house show or TV taping that we do with them. Right. That's really all they were. They were almost like a pay-per-view version of a tag team. It's, it's formed for a storyline to put Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan in a uh, in a match for the title to yeah. get the title back. They to were Hulk. just a, the a, mega powers a, a means to an end. Yeah. That's yeah. all they really were. Yeah, I give you that. I'm going to go ahead and cut this off because I'm tired of talking about that tag team that wasn't worth a <laughs> shit. I'm going to move it into the Varsity Club. This was my honorable mention. Kevin Sullivan as a member and leader, Mike Rotunda, Rick Steiner, Steve Dr. Death Williams, Dan Spivey, all guys with collegiate wrestling experience, hence mm-hmm. the name the Varsity Club. This group ran solidly from 87 to 89, and they were really kind of the second tier heel tag team in WCW at that time. So you had your heel tag teams like a Midnight Express, right? Um, And a few others. Well, you needed a mid-card tag team to help elevate some of those faces. Um, Kevin Sullivan, He's getting a little bit long in the tooth at this age. Mike Rotunda, who ends up becoming one of the most famous dentists in all of wrestling history (laughs) later on. (laughs) 
Then you got Rick Steiner divorcing himself of his brother at the time. Steve, Dr. Death Williams, who was just a beast in the ring. He was Brock Lesnar before Brock Lesnar. Yes. And then you got Dan Spivey, who was a good worker, but I put him more in the category of a Johnny Ace than anybody really super high up on a list. Yeah, He was kind of just added in as other people left. And they did also, I believe they introduced Stacy Keebler as a valet. I think you may be right on that, but that was like right around their breakup time. It was very close to the end. It was at the very end. It was after Kevin Sullivan, I think, had walked away, but they were by no means a top tag team. No. And no, I say I, that no. because now it's time to get into the number <sighs> one tag team on our list. And as if you are a wrestling fan and you haven't guessed it by now, you're not really a wrestling fan in my opinion <laughs> at least of this era the no. number one tag team on our list the road warriors legion of doom uh, what a what rush. Rush. <laughs> okay i was wondering which one of you was gonna do it you both did it. so this is a group from 83 to 2014 you've got hawk and animal i'm not even gonna get into what's the the guy boz or throw up or puke or what the hell ever his name was that draws 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 jesus christ yeah i'm not gonna get into that guy he's not part of the road war certainly not part of the 1980s group point distribution went pretty even across the board as barry had talked about earlier i gave them 10 points barry gave them seven captain kiwi gave them eight we all said when we decided on this podcast well number one's gonna be the road warriors right and everybody (laughs) said yep that's right Well, the thing I find so so intriguing about the Road Warriors, when you go back and look at them, you were talking about the Rock and Roll Express and how they, you know, were were quick. They were able to do the the little big man. They were able to do a lot of those things, but they were really were focused more on speed. Mm. The Road Warriors right. were pretty much the antithesis of that. They were power. Their job was to oh, yeah. beat the ever loving crap out of anybody that gets in that ring, and they didn't care who it was. Well, and they took their name and their look from the famous Mel Gibson sequel. Right. Yes. The sequel to Mad Max, The Road Warrior, which in Australia was just Mad Max 2. Over here, it got renamed to The Road Warrior. And that's where they took their name for their tag team from. And their look. And their look. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the mohawks and the, the shoulder pads with the, the spikes and the, and the face yards. paint. Yeah. I mean, they did a wonderful gimmick. But they did it in a way that, honestly, you almost kind of believed that that was who they really were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you ever, ever want to see the Road Warriors at their absolute best, find the video of when they're performing in Japan. When they do they some great are, work in Japan. Oh yeah. my gosh, just to watch the crowd losing their minds the minute that, you know, Black Sabbath hits. They know what's coming, you know? (laughs) Well, two gaijin (laughs) monsters walking into a Japanese wrestling dojo. I mean, it's bananas. And Japanese fans are notorious for being very silent and somber and um, almost professional when they're watching matches like they're golf clapping half the time when good things happen and, you know, doing that kind of work. But when the road warriors would come out, you're right. It was like a rock concert in America. All of a sudden they just lost their damn minds. And you say that was some of their best work overall. And I'm, I, don't really have a way to disagree with you, but I think one of my favorite memories of the Road Warriors was in an American match where they wrestled the Midnight Express on a scaffold. Oh, Night Ooh. of the Skywalkers. Yes. Oh I have not my seen gosh, that one. I got to yeah, catch that's, that one. Oh, 
And that's the one where Jim Cornette just destroyed his knee when he dropped down from the scaffold and everything. Completely Nobody knew at the ACL. time that he was terrified of heights, but they did such an amazing job in that match. Now, I don't know that that was the first scaffold match, but it feels like a really early incarnation of that specialty match if it wasn't the first one. I, was, I would say it's yeah. definitely one of the first if it wasn't the first, because when you say Night of the Skywalkers, that's the, that's the mm-hmm. image that everybody goes to. Is seeing Jim Cornette dangling from the bottom of that scaffold, holding on for dear life, trying right. to land on what was the guy's name? Big Bubba or something like it was that? Bubba. To- yeah, well, I mean, it, he became Big Bubba, the sheriff of Georgia, yeah. all that stuff. But yeah, it was, was that same to catch guy. him, and he, he missed. So yeah, because as Cornette explains it, the guy was wearing sunglasses in the ring because that was part of his gimmick, and he couldn't see Cornette properly. I'm like, really? Yeah. That's how I missed that's, your fat ass? No, I think he just didn't want to catch you. Yeah, there's that. But I mean, just to watch the Road Warriors in the ring doing their thing. I mean, their finisher is still one of my favorites to watch because there's no way that that doesn't hurt. Mm. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many years you've done ring work. I don't care how planned for it it is or how much you expect it when it's coming. It's going to hurt. So you're talking about the one where they put a guy up on one team member's shoulders and then the the other guy jumps off the top rope and throws a lariat at him and basically makes the guy flip end over end and lands on his back, right? Yes. The doomsday machine or? The doomsday device. The The doomsday doomsday device. device. There you go. And it was just absolutely brutal to see a man that large come off the top rope with such a speed and Right, because Hawk was the one that would put the guy up on the shoulders and Animal would come off the top rope. The bigger of the two. Uh, Captain Kiwi, we talked earlier about you came into the wrestling business, you know, kind of watching wrestling and being a fan of it later than Barry and myself. Right. You still had to have plenty of Legion of Doom exposure. One of the first tag teams that I I was exposed to was the Legion of Doom. And I mean, they they came out to their, their custom entrance at the time was WWF with the uh, the shoulder pads with the spikes and I was like holy shit this is awesome in fact after watching that with with my friends we'd go out in the in the, uh, the backyard and, and sit there and, and play wrestling and my uh, <laughs> friend had uh, he was a football player uh, peewee football and he had some shoulder pads so I was like oh can I use these I'll be the Legion of Doom and put the shoulder pads on and <laughs> oh, it was great watching those guys just the walk to the ring every time I saw that it always reminded me of an oncoming train Oh, yeah. I don't know why. It just like you don't. This is going to hurt. You know, you can't get out of the way. You're just going to have to brace for impact when you see the Road Warriors coming at you. Between the organizations that the Road Warriors were a part of, I'm pretty sure they were more than 10 times world tag team champions. Easily. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons, too, why they had to be number one on the list. If we're just looking at championship accomplishments alone, they are the most decorated tag team on the list, bar Definitely. none. I mean, Definitely. Steiner brothers have a crap ton of tag team titles, but I'm pretty sure the Road Warriors have more. Yeah. yeah. And you'll, you'll notice that we strategically did not talk about LOD 2000, and there's uh. a reason for it. <laughs> no, that, I'm, sorry. I'm not talking the, about the any hockey of that. masks was just bad. I'll mention that they went from 83 to 2014 and that's as close as I'm going to get to that shit. <laughs> Fair. It's been a great top 10 list for our first entry into that genre. I really appreciate all the work that you guys did on helping figure out who should be where and the arguments and the finagling and the bartering and everything else we did back and forth. It has been a blast. Absolutely. But when we come back on the next podcast, we're going to talk about one of my 
favorite subjects, and we're going to relate it to wrestling. We're going to talk about video games and specifically wrestling video games. We're going to have a <laughs> special guest on that podcast. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I think you'll know them if you're a part of the Gen X Grown Up Fan Club. That's as close as I'm getting to telling you who it's going to be. With that said, Barry, thank you so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, this was so much fun, but I still stand behind Strike Force. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kiwi, always a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. I don't stand by uh, Mega Powers, but go Heart <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> and fourth listener, it is you we appreciate most of all, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude, and Jake would be the break. Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip-hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Turnbuckles and Territories, we be stuck to screens in 1980.